Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's super good to be back here um, preaching in front of you. It's been a while. Um, it's a special Sunday because this is the first week um, as we kind of look at this campaign that's going on through all of Ireland right now, this What's the Story campaign, um, and just praying that, that um, God will be at work in those that are considering Jesus or skeptical of Christianity. Um, and uh, I get the opportunity to uh, answer the very simple question this morning of, is anyone out there? Um, yeah, it is both an excellent Pink Floyd song and an extremely human question. Like most of us, I'm sure can remember asking ourselves this question to ourselves or to God at some point in our life. Uh, for me, my, my first and most powerful memory that comes to mind when I think of this question um, is from a much younger, um, a much hairier teenage Will. This was before I was a Christian. And I can remember it like it was yesterday sitting in my, my favorite spot in this prairie across the road from our house. And I, just in front of this grove of young pine trees that I loved, and I remember looking up um, and just saying to God, God, if you are real, if you want anything more for me in life, prove to me you exist. Do something spectacular in the skies right now. Without a shadow of a doubt, prove to me you're real. And then I'll believe. There were a few things wrong with my heart in that moment, but that question, is anyone out there, was real in my heart. And it's a question, a common question for somebody uh, questioning or considering Christianity, but I would also argue that this question is one of the most basic, if not the basic, cries of the human soul. And that's ultimately where I want to lead us this morning, is, is just to see that there's a reason why this question cries out from our hearts, and to see that from the Bible together. But before I go there, I, I want us to first approach this question for anyone here that might not be presuming anything is true about the Bible or the God that it presents. Like, can we even answer this question? Cards on the table, my, my answer for today's question, is anyone out there, is yes. Um, but here's the thing. Even if I had all the time in the world this morning, which I definitely don't, I could not prove that to you without a shadow of a doubt. For many skeptics of the Christian faith or religious faith in general, the very fact that this question exists is the very impasse that they can't get beyond. That is to say, it's a common refrain of the modern skeptic to say, unless you can objectively prove to me without a shadow of a doubt that God exists, I, I cannot believe in your God. I think it's common to hear the belief that science is the only judge for what is real and factual, and that we should not believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using empirical observation. But if you're a secular person with us today, I want to humbly suggest that, that that statement is not true. It's not as though secularism is the result of pure, absolute reason, and Christianity is blind faith. 
Secularism is, is not the absence of belief, it's, it's the presence of a whole new set of beliefs that are also not provable either. That both the secular person and the Christian both use a combination of reason and belief to arrive at their worldview. I have to move quickly, so try not to get upset with me that these are hastily said, but, but here are two reasons why I would say that. The first is that very, very few of our convictions about truth can be proven scientifically. Like you might be able to prove using empirical observation that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, for example, which is a much cleaner number than the Fahrenheit version. But we can't use that same approach to prove truths about history, law, human rights, what we think is good and evil human behavior. Like those things aren't objectively provable. And yet they're cornerstones of our life. I'm going to assume that you believe all people, no matter their race, sex, social class, are equal in dignity and worth. If you do, why do you? Like it's not objectively provable. The the truth is that we all have things that we believe, even things that we're deeply passionate about, that shape the core of our lives that that can't be proven, including your belief that there isn't a God. That's something you can't objectively prove, and so it's based partially on faith. And the second point that I would make on this is that we all have, Christian and skeptic alike, we all have emotional reasons and otherwise why we believe what we believe. Again, it's a very common argument from skeptics to say that that Christians believe in God because they want to believe in God. They have emotional reasons to believe in God. They want to believe in life after death, and so they do. Whereas I, the secular person, have not based my worldview on emotional need, but arrived at it by reason alone. And I would just say, again, if that's you this morning, I I don't think that you're being honest with yourself. The secular person and the Christian both have emotionally charged reasons to believe what they believe. Thomas Nagel, a a famous philosophy teacher at NYU, had this to say about his own atheism. He said, I I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it's responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life. Here's another one. Aldous Huxley, who was a, a famous atheist, um, English writer, and philosopher, um, he similarly said, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why 
he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Um, hear this. He objected, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And then he said this about the response that he had to Christians in his life. He said, there was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. All right, so here's, here's my point. For the secular person or skeptic of Christianity, there is a whole host of emotionally charged reasons that you could have to not believe in God. Maybe belief in God keeps you from living the life that you want. Maybe you simply don't want the universe to be like that. Maybe you have experiences of religion that have negatively impacted you. Maybe it's none of those. But whatever the, the, the secular person uh, can't say is that they've arrived at that by reason alone. Both the secular person and the Christian both have emotional reasons to believe what they believe. All right, so when we ask the question, is anyone out there, one cannot demand, prove to me irrefutably using objective reason that God exists and then I'll believe because no worldview is attained that way. Most of, most of life is not objectively provable, let alone a finite being in a material world trying to objectively prove the existence of an immaterial, infinite God. So what do we do? Am I suggesting that we abandon reason and just go by blind faith? Not at all. Nor is that what God asks of us. He has created us as both reasonable creatures, but also emotional. And God has made himself evident to us by the way of all of our faculties. It's irrational to demand irrefutable proofs for God's existence, but God has given us numerable, strong clues that make it the most rational, natural takeaway. I'll just very briefly mention a couple of those clues, but for the rest of our time, I want us to look at the story of the Bible and the God of the Bible himself and what he has to say about this question. All right, so first clues. We can see clues scientifically, uh, such as the, the cosmic wonder, right? That, that everything we know from the material universe and our scientific studies of it says that something cannot come from nothing. That matter cannot be self-producing. Things can't spring out of nowhere. And so given what we know about matter, it is, it's logical to conclude that there must be some unique being that exists outside of the material universe that first brought matter into being. This argument has become even more interesting as science has advanced and now that we have evidence that the universe is expanding explosively and in increasing speed outwardly from a single point. Stephen Hawking, theoretical physicist and atheist, once commented on this point saying, 
The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. I'm moving through these super quick uh, because I need you for time, but clue number two, perceived design. Often called the fine-tuning argument, scientist Francis Collins in his book, The Language of God, puts it like this. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. All right, so when you look at at all the perfect calibrations of the universe, the probability of it all happening by chance is so tiny, it is statistically negligible. Even, uh, sorry, again, Stephen Hawking said about this, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. The main argument skeptics would have in response would be to say, well, it's, it's possible to have infinite universes. And with infinite universes comes the possibility of a universe that is as perfect for us as this one. Okay. While I can't prove there are infinite universes out there, man, surely, surely we must admit that's a position based on an incredible amount of faith. And one that ignores the immediate reasonable conclusion that the fine-tuning of the one and only universe that we do know exists looks to be that of some intentional intellectual designer. God also gives us clues philosophically and socially, such as moral obligation. Um, A very common thought about morality today is that no one should impose moral beliefs on others because everyone has the right to find whatever truth is inside themselves. And if there is no God, well, I mean, that, that checks out. And yet if you ask the same people, well, don't you believe that there's people doing things in the world that you believe are wrong and that you think you sh- they should stop doing them even if they think that they are right? Well, everyone would, would say yes. But why? I mean, what, what right do you have to say that Putin ought to stop invading Ukraine? You could say you don't want him to, You could say he shouldn't, but you can't say that he ought to. The answer is that we all believe in moral obligation. Moral obligation is a belief that that some things ought not to be done regardless of how a person feel about them, regardless of what the rest of her community and culture says, and regardless of whether it is in her self-interest or not. Natural selection, it's strong over the weak, right? Survival of the fittest. 
It could potentially create moral feelings that would help you survive, but it can't explain obligation. It can't explain the ought-tos of morality, like the Russian citizen who's willing to stand up to Putin even if it means he's killed. He does it because he ought to. We know there is right and wrong, but, but listen, there's no basis for right and wrong or human rights if there is no God. And yet humans can't deny it. We all live like it's true. Without God, we can't justify moral obligation, and yet all of our lives prove that it's there. Man, there's so many more things that we could dive into. Things that drive us as humans that just don't make sense if we're random collections of atoms. right? Our own consciousness, for example. Um, our longing for purpose and meaning. The fact that beauty exists in the world and that we're driven by it. Things that point not just to the existence of God, but, but to the kind of God that is there and what he created us for. But time is not on my side, and, and, and what I want to do even more this morning is to see this from the Bible's perspective. Is anyone out there? Yes. Yes, there is. If so, well, the next question would be, who is out there? This morning, I won't be making any arguments for, for Christianity as opposed to other religions. But let me just say a couple things towards uh, common thoughts around that before we look at the Bible. It is not tenable to say that all roads lead to the same God. It might sound super accepting, but, but when you really give it any thought, it, it can't hold water. Because the, the central core components of those religions contradict each other in such a way that they can't both be true or you strip the whole religion of what it is. For example, if Jesus says himself that he's the one true God and, and no one can be saved outside of him, either the guy was a lunatic or he was right. But you can't disagree with him and still have Jesus. Nor can you say, I'll admit there's a God, but I consider myself spiritual, but, but not really of any particular religion. Firstly, it doesn't work because, I mean, it's, it's meaningless. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't answer any questions. It doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem. It's ultimately a very self-centered and man-centered construct. But more importantly, it doesn't work because we don't have the right to define God ourselves. No Englishman can say, I believe in the monarchy, but I don't like the idea of King Charles, and so I think that I'll be king instead. Like, it, it doesn't work that way. Charles is the king of England, whether you like it or not, for as long as he wears the crown. If God has revealed himself and defined himself to his creation, then that's who he is. We as creatures don't get to define who he is. And that same thing is true for the person that says, look, I'm a Christian, 
but I'm going to sort of pick out the bits that I like. Listen, God is who he is. We don't get to define him. We will all day, or we will all one day stand before him, and he will be exactly who he is. Not whatever version of him we felt like. And that is a sobering thought. So, who does the God of the Bible say that he is? Well, let's look at the Bible. The Bible is not a book of rules. It's not a list of do's and don'ts like I thought that it was growing up. The Bible is primarily the true story about God and his creation. And God is where the story starts. In the beginning, God. And the Bible teaches that God is the one and only God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, living in perfect community together. So perfectly happy together, so perfectly full of joy and love for one another, that God decided to create the universe and everything in it. He didn't create it to fill some need of his own because God doesn't have needs like us, but he created it as an overflow of himself that others might share in this perfect community of love with him. Sort of like how a husband and wife love one another and out of that love they bring a child into the world to share in that love with them as a family. God created the world and everything in it, and after seeing everything he created, he declared it good. Everything was right in his eyes. But he wasn't done there. He had one last special thing to create, man and woman. See, humans were special because only with them, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. God made us different than the rest of creation. He made us for a special, distinct relationship with him. In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we saw God's creation as he meant it to be for us. In this special relationship, God as the provider gave them everything they needed for a perfectly joyful life in him. Every plant and tree that was, that was good for food and good to the eyes. And he gave them rule over the rest of creation to care for it. And man's part in the relationship? Man's job was to glorify God by enjoying God and all of his creation in the way that he meant it to be enjoyed. And the best part of all, God was right there with them. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day, God himself in their midst. And after making man and woman, God looked at what he said, or what he made, and he said, it is very good. He declared them perfectly right in his eyes. This is how he wanted to share his love with us. 
Like we looked at last week, though, the thing with love, true love is only possible if we have a choice to love or not. God didn't create us as robots. He created us with a free will. He gave us the ability to enjoy him and his creation in the way that he designed it to be enjoyed or not to. He gave Adam and Eve a choice. Here's everything you need to enjoy me through my creation and be right in my eyes, but do not eat of the fruit of this tree. I didn't make that for you. We all know the choice Adam and Eve made, whether we've read Genesis or not, because it's the same choice that you and I make over and over again today. Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie that said God was a killjoy, that he was hiding happiness from them. The way he designed them to enjoy him and his creation wasn't the best way. If they ate of the tree he said not to, they could be like God himself. They could decide what was right and wrong. They could declare themselves right in their own eyes. And so they did. And in doing so, they tore the very fabric of their, their special relationship with God. So we don't, we don't think much of our disobedience today. We think it's pretty normal because that's all we've ever known. So they disobeyed God. So what? But see, God isn't like us. God is holy, perfectly right, perfectly pure, perfectly unique from the rest of creation because he is the only uncreated one. Everything else was created from him and through him and for him. See, when God tells the wind to blow this way or that, it obeys. When he commands the salmon, it's time to run up the corib, it obeys. When he commands the earth to spin around the sun or gravity to hold its force or for atoms to coalesce together, they obey his command. But when he commands you and I to trust him, we use his air in our lungs to say, no, I don't think so. Our disobedience, our sin breaks God's created order. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they introduced sin into God's world and death along with it. And so we were cursed, broken along with the rest of creation. And at the heart of this curse, the very worst part was that we were separated from God. Separated from him physically and separated from him spiritually. Man could no longer dwell with God in his holiness, and Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. And the only reality that we now know is one separated from our creator. What I want us to see is that the very reason we cry out, is anyone out there, is because the very thing we were created for is broken. We were made for a special, intimate relationship with God to be near him, to see him, to hear him, to be 
to know him, to enjoy him. Listen, when a man is dying from dehydration and everything in him thirsts for water, do you know what that tells him? It tells him that he's made for water. He needs it to live. We cry out, is anyone out there? Because that's what we're made for. We need him to live. And it's been broken. Praise God. Praise God the story doesn't end there. From the very moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion, God promises and begins a rescue plan to fix his broken world and redeem us back into right relationship with him, back into his presence. And man, this theme goes throughout the whole of the Bible of God making a way to draw near to his people again. All throughout the Old Testament, God drawing near to his people in various ways, such as his glory dwelling in the tabernacle for the Israelites so that he might dwell in their midst. All of it while God continued to promise a day was coming when he would fix the problem once and for all and truly dwell with his people again. And when the fullness of time came, Jesus was born. Jesus was also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the Gospel of John, John calls him the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself walking in the midst of his people. Later, John writes, we have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked upon and touched him with our hands, just like we were made to do in the garden. Please see, this is God's heart for his people to have a special relationship with us in our midst. But Jesus didn't just come to walk among his people. He came to fix the problem, the thing that separates us from him, that is sin. See, again, God is holy. He can't just ignore sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He is a righteous judge, and that would be immoral for him to do. See, all of us are guilty, but we can't bear that punishment ourselves. So what does God do? Well, Jesus didn't just come to live among us. He came to save us. He came to die for us. Jesus, perfectly holy and without sin, said, I will take their place. I will pay the punishment for their sin for them. See, this was God's plan to fix the problem of the sin, a problem of sin, the problem that was keeping his people from him that God himself would pay the price for us. God accepted Jesus in our place when he was shamefully put to death on the cross. For everyone who trusts not in their own righteousness, but in Jesus' righteousness for them, God declares them perfectly right in his eyes. 
just like he did at first for Adam and Eve. Jesus then proved his victory over sin and death when three days later God raised him back to life and then he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. And man, for those who have a hard time believing in the supernatural, be encouraged. So did one of Jesus' own disciples. One of his disciples, Thomas, said, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, I will never believe. Eight days after saying this, John 21, 26, the resurrected Jesus came and stood in his midst. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and, and, and place it on my side. Don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. To which Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. You might say, see, man, if I, if I just could have been there and seen Jesus in the flesh, then, then I'd believe. But Jesus said it was actually better for us that he left. Because when Jesus ascended, he told his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And God then sent his own spirit into the world to show us who he was and to fill the very hearts of believers, whoever trusts in him. God himself, by his spirit, dwelling within us. This is God's heart for us. For everyone who believes, Jesus has broken the barrier that separated us from our special relationship with God, this is God's heart for you. Again, I'm telling you this story because I want you to see that there's a reason why this question burns within us. It's the very core, the very heart of what you've been made for. You're made for a special relationship with God. And the reason we question it is because we live in a cursed and broken reality. We weren't just separated from God physically, but spiritually. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, it's not just reason that's keeping you from seeing God. The Bible says that spiritual separation has left us spiritually blind to the things of God, even spiritually dead. In John 3, Jesus said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The point is this, we, we need God to open our eyes in order to see him. I'm a Christian today, I'm a, I'm a pastor today, not, not because I'm smart enough, not because I'm spiritual enough, not because I had just enough faith I'm a follower of Jesus today because God had mercy on me. By his grace, he opened my eyes to see and understand him. And by grace, he gave me the faith to believe in him. 
He answered the prayer of my teenage self when I demanded, prove you're out there, God. Not by some miraculous movement of the clouds. The truth was, I already knew God existed. It was clear to me as I I sat and enjoyed his creation in my favorite spot in that prairie. I knew deep down he was there. But what I wanted was to enjoy all of his created stuff without bowing my knee to the creator. The Bible says in Romans 1 that, that God has actually clearly made himself evident to all of us so that none of us are without excuse. That the problem is that we worship and serve created things instead of the creator. See, what I needed was God's spirit to soften my heart. What I needed to see that my wrongdoing wasn't just bad choices. It was, it was an affront against an infinitely holy God. What I needed to see was and understand and experience was his incredible love for me. And that's exactly what God gave me. I'd be happy to share the rest of my story with anyone afterwards, but God kept pursuing me, and eventually the day came when I surrendered everything to him. And as I began to read the Bible, I saw that this God wasn't like the one presented to me growing up. I was far more sinful. He was far more holy, but he was, oh, oh, so much more full of love and mercy than I could have ever imagined. I surrendered my life to him, and that's when life truly began. Listen, if you're with us this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, again, thank you for coming. And if you're wrestling with this question at all, I would just give you a few things that I would encourage you to do as next steps. Number one, pray. I mean, even if you're still a skeptic, listen, if God's not real, there's, there's no harm here. But I would encourage you to do it sincerely and not on your own terms. Don't be like teenage Will, demanding God act in some way for you. Just confess your, um, your need for him to help you see him. If you're someone that's already considering Jesus, And it can be the simplest prayer in the world, but I would just say pray. Confess to Jesus. Go to him with all of your doubt, all of your shame. His spirit is right here in your midst. Confess your sin and ask for help to trust him with your whole heart. Number two, don't don't just carry on with your life and wait for him to do something, but, but seek him out. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. I'd encourage you to read books about Jesus. Um, I have a couple great ones here for anyone that's, um, that's just considering Christianity from Tim Keller. Um, And there's more on the table. We have more in our library over there. Um, Read books about him. Talk to Christians you know. Ask questions. But the best thing you could do is to read about this Jesus from the Bible yourself. We have some copies of the Gospel of John over the table 
uh, over on the table over there for you to grab. Read it and consider Jesus. Better yet, read it with a Christian that you know. Because here's the thing, while I can't give you an absolute airtight proof of God this morning, I can point you to Jesus and you might just discover that he is airtight. Finally, one last encouragement for everyone in the room. No matter where you are at with Jesus, we still live in a broken world. Even for the most mature Christians, this question bears on our hearts, often in different forms. Though, by God's grace, I don't, I don't question God's existence anymore. But different seasons of my life cause me to cry out to God in the same way that we, we read from the likes of David in the Psalms. Where are you right now, God? Why do you seem so silent to me? How long? Why do you hide your face from me? Man, even this week as I'm trying to write a sermon, just asking, God, where are you? Speak to me. Listen, if you're walking through something like that today, let me just encourage you. There's a reason why your heart aches that way. It's not because God's not there. It's because we're still living in a cursed and broken world. And this is the very heart of the curse. And the good news is, the good news is this isn't our ultimate home. It's not the end of the story. Let me just close by, by reading from the last chapter of the Bible in, in Revelation. John caught up in this vision of our future heavenly home said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, the story ends with God redeeming all of creation back to how it should be. Just like it was in the garden. God in our midst. This is God's heart for you, no matter who you are. We ask this question because it's what we're made for. And the day is coming that for all who trust in him, when he will make all things new. Let's pray. Oh God, we, th we thank you this morning that you are not a God that has kept silent you are not cold and distant. You're not uninterested. But God, you have made yourself known. You made yourself known through Jesus and you're continuing to make yourself known through your spirit and your word. I pray 
that for anyone here that doesn't know you yet, God, that, that you would give them eyes to see. Pray that you would use your word this morning to powerfully bring hope to, to anyone here to remember your heart for us and our future with you. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.